Hello, welcome to today's episode of Juice in the Big Screen, your movies review and discussion podcast. I'm one of your hosts, uh, Joshua Tracy. I am Corbin Miller. Forgot my own name for a hot second there. Uh, and best of us. I hope so. Um, we are here today to talk about the 2022 film The Northman and the 1986 film Blue Velvet. Corbin Heller, where do you want to start? Iceland or Suburbia, USA? Uh, man, let's start Suburbia, USA. All right, you got it. So that means that we're talking about Blue Velvet, which came out in, as I just said, 1986. The film was written and directed by David Lynch. Film stars Isabella Rossellini, Kyle MacLachlan, and just Dennis Hopper. Film had an estimated budget of uh, $6 million and a worldwide gross of $8.6 million. So it made its money back uh, and a little extra. Fun fact about the film, it was actually given a very, very limited release due to the subject matter of the film. But audiences that turned out to the theaters were actually so extensive that it forced a broader opening so the film kind of was one of those early like an early cult film that gained traction as it was happening instead of subsisting more more on um like dvd or i guess at this point vhs sales home box office essentially um just a neat fact for that figure anyway the film had a single Oscar nomination, but no wins. The film was nominated for Best Director for David Lynch at the 1987 Academy Awards. And uh, let's see, David Lynch lost that year to Oliver Stone for Platoon, another movie we have done on this podcast. Um, the film is about the discovery of a severed human ear found in a field leads a young man on an investigation related to a beautiful, mysterious nightclub singer and a group of psychopathic criminals who have kidnapped her child. This was my film, so I will go ahead and get us started. Uh, this is considered like the the pinnacle of early David Lynch. You know, Eraserhead is, is that kind of the, that first outing of uh, Madman Genius where he's really like laying all out there, this wacky internal vision that he has created. And then the follow-up to that would be Elephant Man, which was not his own writing. That was, uh, I forget who it was written by, but you know, he was a little, a little bit more of like a hired gun kind of role for that. Um, and then came Dune, which was a massive failure, which was what the studios had procured him to do on the back of the success of Elephant Man. And here is his return to, some some desperate attempt to claw back to the person he felt as though he was when creating a racer head. And it's incredible. It's an incredible take on the uh, an updated version of the film noir. And it heightens so many aspects of the film noir that we're used to seeing in you know a bunch of those bogey and um, Edward G. Robinson movies from like the 30s and 40s, where there is uh not just crime, but like lustful crime, right? And then there's 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 not just a, a seedy underbelly, but it, it's truly villainous and 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 heinous, while also having some disregard for societal norms and and some increased sense of capability of violence. And um, what I love about this particular film as a take on noir is it doesn't just have all of these things. 
in the confines of typically like a city environment. You know, if you, if you look around at a lot of other film noir, if you look at like um, uh, Maltese Falcon or anything like that, they're usually taking place in an urban area. So you can say, ah, well, these exist within the, you know, the, the sewers and subways of this gigantic city. And instead it takes place in this kind of like small idyllic town, very kind of common in a David Lynchian environment and says that, well, no, these, these things can happen right around you. Like you just have to find them there. These types of things can exist even in places we consider idyllic and, and otherwise safe. You just don't know about them or they're being subdued in some type of way. Um, really interesting movie. Kyle MacLachlan's great. Isabella Rossellini is, I mean, killing it. And this is the film that revitalized Dennis Hopper's career. Um, Corwin, excited to hear your thoughts on it. Um, at the core, the, I guess the thematic direction and what David Lynch is trying to express is still very David Lynch. It's very good. It's very well, you know, pieced together in your head once you're done watching it and thinking back on it. But God, in the moment, I just, I can't get over what I thought was really clunky dialogue and over slash underacting by certain characters. And I just can't get over the feeling that I had watching this of just, God, this just doesn't make sense at its core. What the fuck is this like recent high school graduate doing in the middle of this fucking investigation, trying to swoon this 18 year old while banging this absolutely psychotic nightclub singer who is just, through, I don't know, man. I I told you last week I don't get David Lynch, and I didn't want it to affect my viewing of this, and I wasn't going to let it affect it. But all of the little things that I just don't get when I watch his films, just that don't seem like good directorial choices, just came back immediately, and I couldn't get through it. Like, I'm not saying I couldn't get through it. I got through it. I sat through it. I gave it my earnest. I just couldn't get through to seeing what you see when you watch David Lynch. I don't see I, the genius at work. I love the dialogue in, in his in his work. I, oh, it's so and, I and I think Kyle MacLachlan is so, so fucking good. But but that that's kind of the point of it. Like when you watch a film noir especially in film noir like you know but you can really p- pick out a lot of kind of these early like golden age films the dialogue is not necessarily conversational and but it's especially noticeable in the film noir genre where it's a lot of like very slick language like very like silver tongued you know everyone's got um a cadence and a, and a and a pattern to their speech that isn't really quite real but it's there to serve the purpose of making the characters kind of more interesting or um more dangerous in some kind of way and the language and dialogue in this film specifically for like kyle mclaughlin dennis hopper and the people who are then you know in the the underbelly of society is like so 
almost how someone talks that it, it is very much so there to serve that similar purpose of like we're not quite real you know there were not quite people like, there is something off-putting about that language that is indicative of who these characters are and what they're supposed to be doing like laura dern's character which by the way completely forgot she was in this movie and she's incredible um laura dern's character really speaks pretty much like a normal fucking human being and because of her place in the film that makes a lot of sense you know it and to that effect that is kind of the the difference between laura dern and isabella rossellini is kind of like you know you got two choices in front you got you got a fork in the road one leads towards the normal progression of society what most people end up going to go on and do you know it, it's it's blonde all-american girl education uh house of the picket fence all that type of shit versus the 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 the, the dark side of things you know it's a classic star wars-esque dichotomy of choice that you have there um a and, way to way to really sell into that. Oh, this is like Star Wars. Well, I, I just meant in terms of the black and white nature of it. You know what I mean? I get it. Because uh, that's and that's one of the things that that you know Lynch does really well, which is what the big selling point of you know a, a television series like Twin Peaks is, uh, or any of the the Twin Peaks films that followed it, which is the the slight untethering of persona and communication uh, you know, of dialogue and, and speech that serves to create the ambiance of the film, which is unsettling, you know, and, and which I think works really well. Like Kyle McLaughlin's a fucking freak in this movie. And it's amazing. Like when, when him and Laura Dern are walking on that, um, on that, on the sidewalk heading to the apartment building that Isabella Rossellini lives in, like the first time they go there and Kyle McLaughlin does that fucking weird ass like chicken walk thing was so fucking strange. <laughs> and he leaned into that so hard. It was incredible. It was incredible to see a man just so not quite right. <laughs> it's so convinced of his own charmingness and of his own affability that he doesn't maybe realize how kind of off-putting he is. I mean, it I, really I serves to make him note. seem like a person who would be, you know, get swept up in something that is so crazy as the rest of the plot of this film. I made, made a note it. questioning if we were supposed to think Kyle McLaughlin, um, I honestly forgot his character's name, um, if he's meant to be this sort of charismatic, charmer kind of fellow with the Absolutely ridiculous gold earring. I didn't notice until like halfway through the film. Yo, 30 and minutes in. I was like, whoa, he's wearing, a, he's wearing an earring. I, I stopped the film, restarted it, and went to check to see if it was something he got halfway through off screen after he became a self-elected detective to see if he had it throughout the film. He did, but regardless... They absolutely were trying to play him off as that. And my goodness, Kyle, you are a dork. Well, that's, I, again, that's the thing is I, I don't quite think that they're trying to make him seem as though he is like wonderfully charming and, and affable. That he thinks he is. Right. And that typically the protagonists in these types of film think that they are too. 
like I think when you if you were to to interact with Humphrey Bogart in the Maltese Falcon, he's not like he is his you know, slick tongued, but he is not necessarily like a likable character. Right. And it's it, it is just that kind of disconnect from likability, but presented in like the suburban version of it. You know what I mean? It's not big city, fast talking kind of cold shoulder. It's corny and lame <laughs> and kind of strange, but it's that same slight disconnect. You see what I mean? I do. Yeah. Again, not saying you have to like it for that, but I like that. That seems to me anyway, anyway, to be kind of like where it's trying to go with that. Uh, I guess we should eventually talk about the plot of this movie. <laughs> um, so to that end, um, Kyle MacLachlan, whose character's name is Tom, I think. Hold on. I have, I'm going to do definitely not Tom. It... Is uh, Jeffrey. 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 Um, is his dad Tom? I see Tom here. Oh, yeah. His dad's Tom. Okay. So uh, Kyle MacLachlan's dad gets like hurt. It's never really <laughs> explicitly stated what happens, but he, he's in the hospital. So he comes home from college. So, so Kyle MacLachlan comes home from college, um, walks over to the, the hospital, walks back at the end of the day and finds an ear lying on the ground takes that to the police station. The police are like, oh, and the police are like, oh, you found an ear, did you? And they're like, oh, shit, you found an ear. Um, after they open up the bag that he was in, which is pretty fucking funny. Really funny watching that, like the way he spoke to uh, Jeffrey. Just like, ah, good work, kiddo. Treating him like a genuine eight-year-old child. And it's like, ah. Yeah, I, 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 picture, I, I picture the bag from Arrested Development that was labeled dead dub, do not eat opening it up and just I don't, don't know, know what, what I, I expected. I also love that this is an era where no one needs to say what you're in college for. You're just the golden child for going to college. You know, like they never say that Jeffrey's going to school to be a doctor or a lawyer or like adding some some level of uh I don't know so some some additional gravitas to his being in school that I think you'd probably have to do nowadays because going to college is so much more commonplace. It literally is just like, oh, he's a college man. Which I always found funny in these types of movies. Uh, so anyway, uh, Kyle McLaughlin gets wrapped up in, with uh, the police chief's daughter because she's feeling rebellious and is like, ooh, I know some information. I could probably help you because she feels like getting back at her shitty and annoying dad. And then this kind of starts leading them into the thrust of the film, right? Uh, Laura Dern's character is like, hey, I heard another thing about this that I think ties back to your thing about this woman, Dorothy Valens, who's a nightclub singer. They go to the nightclub. Um, they then break into Dorothy's apartment, steal a house key, and get ranked all wrapped up with this uh, this main bad guy who becomes, I guess, the the ultimate villain of the film that needs to be rebelled against, Frank Booth, played by uh, Dennis Hopper, who was great in this. Um, and then this leads to a you know it turns out that uh, Dorothy Valens, Isabella Rossellini's character, uh, had a had a husband and a child who had been kidnapped by 
uh, Frank Booth and they, so that uh, force her to commit these crazy sexual acts um, to satiate himself in exchange for her family's safety. The ear, assuming uh, belonging to to the husband after um, as, a, as a threat to to Dorothy Valance to force her to, you know, comply, I suppose. Oh, so how how did you wrangle with I, I know we talked a little bit about, you know, how you found certain aspects of the character performances off putting. Yeah. <laughs> how did you feel about the actual plot of the film? Um, I was a little torn again, like I said, that I couldn't understand why he would be putting himself in the situation. Um, that it, I guess in and of itself is just something that needs to be looked over because it's a film, it's a movie, it's not real. And we, I do it for fucking Star Wars where everything is because, well, there's space magic, so. I actually find I actually found that they did a pretty a pretty good job of laying that out. I because I totally get like the raw curiosity that comes with like the early stages of this stuff, especially again because of this like small town nature of things. You know, like here's a kid who was off at school, he's back because his dad's sick, but like because his dad's sick, there's like not really a lot going on. He's found this ear that's fucking crazy this girl knows a thing that kind of like gets him jump started, feeds into his curiosity. And then every little additional step kind of feeds that curiosity until it seems like he's in too deep, you know? Um, yeah. I, I don't disagree with that. I don't know, I'm just trying to think back through the story and piece it together. In... Hold on one second for me. Okay. uh okay we jumped right back in i have no idea where i was um <laughs> sorry we fixed it we fixed a technical issue um which derailed us a touch but i was i was asking you about like the main thrust of, of the plot of things um i think i, I kind of forget now did we ever get to a realization or discovery about what the intentions or what the end goal was for frank and his cronies other than making money off selling drugs and fiendish sexual activity. No, that seemed like it was really it. I mean, because with, with a lot of these types of films, the end goal is typically like, you know, some big score or some escalation of their nefarious doings. But this really seemed like they were just in a comfortable spot, like pushing drugs and owning Isabella Rossellini and sexual slavery. Um, it was really just that Kyle McLaughlin kind of threw a wrench in things. Ah, that little bastard. Those meddling kids. <laughs> All right, touche. I mean, it's hard to say because I barely wrap my head around the plot as an entire narrative versus just kind of sitting through it scene by scene and just trying to figure out what was happening. Like, you know, it, it's just... Uh, taking it one step at a time and seeing the trees rather than the forest. What did you, let's, let's talk a little bit about some of the, the side characters then. What did you think about uh, Dennis Hopper in the film? Um, he plays Frank and then is also later revealed in the film to also be the well-dressed man. 
I mean, Dennis Hopper is at his core, uh, just always going to be Dennis Hopper, right? Absolutely unhinged at every turn. Uh, what I mentioned earlier about like overacting, that's wholeheartedly just Dennis Hopper as, you know, a whole, which it's not really overacting when it's the core of just completely unhinged criminal. Um, but it's, I can't not see Dennis Hopper when he plays a character. I don't ever see the character. I only ever see Dennis Hopper. And I think that's from coming into him as a person and as an actor, seeing everything all at once and knowing the entire history rather than just seeing him roll to roll as time goes on. Um, well, it's, but- it's funny you say that because they had a, some difficulty casting this part because nobody wanted to be associated with this kind of character. Yeah. And, you know, because Dennis Hopper is, a, I mean, a real not good guy in this movie. I don't know how you guys feel about sexual slavery, but uh, not not a great guy here um, until they got to Dennis Hopper, who was like, I have to play this part. This is me. Yeah, like they probably sent David Lynch probably sent Dennis Hopper a script uh did not label the part and just like how did you get an early manuscript for my autobiography what is this david how did you do this yeah it must have been such a wild series of uh a wild time on set uh, apparently like isabella rosalini was also fully nude in the the ritualistic rape scene that happens in the film but didn't tell dennis hopper about it so he was finding that out in like real time and <laughs> was like oh oh so like when he gets on his his knees to do that weird thing like into her vagina like he was just face to face with it and didn't realize that was what was about to happen and like for isabella rosalini to make that choice is also like what god damn okay like no one's forcing you to do this do you think what we saw was still the first take i i think it was that take absolutely hell yeah but i mean yeah he is um and he's he's got this interesting this interesting like character point to him, which is his like slight obsession with music, which is actually really interesting because he, you know, he has such small such strong emotional reaction to every time Isabella Rossellini sings "Blue Velvet" at the club, right? Which is is a real song. It was not made for this film. Like you can go find that song recordings from like the 50s um but then like there's this roy orbison song that also comes up later in the film when they meet um uh ben the this weird like john waters kind of like bad guy like it feels like for just a brief moment we stepped into pink flamingos <laughs> and um you know they do like ben does like this weird lip sync rendition of Roy Orbison's In Dreams, a song which then comes up later as Frank is threatening um, Kyle McLaughlin with the lyrics to In Dreams. And it's it's a really interesting kind of connection to, to, to music that I guess is meant to actually I want to I want to hear your your interpretation of like the musical connection here for for the the villain of the film where do you do you have any interpretation of it 
frankly i don't it wasn't something i was really keened in on watching like obviously i knew frank had a connection to how uh what's her name um isabella rosalini yes thank you um how she is connected with her singing and her performance and he has a connection there but boy i was distracted by other more in your face things going on to really key in on the background connections those those subplots yeah i i think that you know the the music stuff combined with the sex stuff is also a slightly like obviously you know, film noir leans pretty regularly into like the risque behavior of hmm. the societal outcasts you know there is more overt sexual discussion or, or you know the, even just the concept of the femme fatale in general right is sexual in nature and heavily leaned upon in film noir and i think to have the the, the sex aspect of the film combined with the musical aspect of the film to really be like the driver behind frank's erratic behavior or frank's um like they don't there's the fact that he is selling drugs or like dealing drugs in some kind of way is basically like irrelevant like it, it's not why anybody cares about what he's doing it is the everything else around what he is which seems to be representative by his emotional connections to things which is also an interesting direction to take this type of character because it always feels often feels like watching these films the main motivation is money which mm-hmm. just does not seem to be the case here he has other um stimuli that that causes behavior outside of money which again barely features in this film uh, as you were looking this up uh, i was going back uh when you brought up ben and uh saw dean stockwell when we release this tomorrow will be the one year anniversary of his death oh wow for a complete non sequitur for you shout outs to you dean um, um, I was just going to start wrapping us up. Uh, yeah, we can talk about the Northman. Uh, so I guess we'll we'll go into the ending here, real quick, and then and then just final ratings and reviews on on this one. Um, so the film ends with kind of like this I, idyllic little ending. Um, oh, the, you know, there's this whole big big blow up, and and uh, Kyle McLaughlin's about to get beat up by the. Laura Dern's ex-boyfriend and Isabella Rossellini pops out naked out of nowhere. And there's this, the, the shootout at, at her apartment and all this stuff. And then the, the when the dust finally kind of settles on it, Laura Dern and Kyle McLaughlin are together having their relationship. Kyle McLaughlin is mowing the lawn, much the same as you see his father doing in the beginning of the film as his father is making a recovery. Um, and you see Isabella Rossellini playing in the park with her son, and it seems like everything worked out. What did you think? Uh, you know, big happy ending, uh, as always. Um, it's, does I don't know. Sorry, I'm trying to think through this. Um, <laughs> just, How long ago did you watch the movie, by the way? I'm just curious. Um, a handful of days ago it was relative, like okay, a week relative. maybe yeah oh, okay um it genuinely just did not connect itself to my brain no it's because also um, you and i have mentioned like sometimes we watch these movies oh, two weeks like before two we weeks. record yeah yeah it's like they're gone 
I don't know, man. It's the Laura Dern character, the Kyle McLaughlin, Mac Laughlin. Sorry. Um, I don't know if I wanted them to have a happy ending. Just like, uh, I know it really doesn't make any difference to the storyline or, or what you would think of the film, but like, that really does seem like young love that's just completely blinded to like what is and is not healthy in a relationship. And the way that like he admits to his connection with uh, Isabella's character and just like the emotional, not manipulation, but like the strain that goes on for her throughout all of that. Just like, ah, you're like 18 years old, about to graduate high school. This must be incredibly traumatizing. And I can't imagine you ending up okay just sitting through this for another however long this relationship kind of works itself through like ah that just didn't sit right with me after finishing see i would agree with you if this film was attempting to portray realism which it is not and to that end i actually really like the ending because again using the overly idyllic happy ending leans very well into what the film is trying to accomplish by showing that this, that disparity between very picturesque um sub, you know suburbia USA versus the the seedy underbelly that lies just just below the surface of its of, of suburbia's existence right and so to have the film end on this very cheerful joyous note after coming off of such the exact opposite i mean the scene where um Frank's head gets blown off happens like one entire scene before Kyle McLaughlin's like mowing his lawn. Like it really is like that close together. I think it's meant to really serve the purpose of, yeah, lots of places look very, very nice and, and peaceful and, 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 and joyous, but in fact have, sinister or more dark elements to them that a lot of people even those who have experienced them or been through them just choose not to acknowledge um which i think is well i, I think it was i think it was effective for the uh for the film um yeah i i don't have any like crazy final thoughts i mean i usually lay it out there when i talk about these and how much uh i feel stupid after watching uh, a guy like david lynch and just not really getting what he does that being said uh, are we doing ratings now yeah yeah uh, i'd give it like a three i feel like it was still a relatively enjoyable experience especially uh if you can follow what was going on and, and you know what you're getting into with david lynch so yeah like a i don't know like a three i can't give it anything higher I think I'd give this a solid like four, four and a half. Yeah. Oh, which way would I go? Um, four and a half. I love this fucking movie. Yeah. It's so goddamn good. Um, I mean, it's also fun or funny to watch because not funny, but it's, it's also interesting to watch if you have a background where you understand a lot of the tropes that are being played here. Not even necessarily tropes, but a lot of the 
the dis- the disparate nature of the representation of this type of plot and this type of film as in you know in juxtaposition to where it, it originates from that's not to say that you should have to watch these the you know earlier films to understand what's happening in in uh like a film should be able to stand on its own two legs and i do think that this does but it it only gets better the more background you have here you know if you were to to watch some of the you know the titans of film noir where you could get a better background for the feel of what the themes are being at play here i think it would lead to some really great enjoyment of it but yeah all right anywho let's move on to the other film the other film we had to talk about today and that is the northman which came out just this past year 2022 the film was directed by robert eggers and was written by robert eggers and the icelandic poet sion not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. Not going to find out either. Um, <laughs> the film had an estimated budget of $60 million and a worldwide gross of $69 million. So it made its money back. Um, oh, the tagline. I don't think I did the tagline for Blue Velvet. The tagline is conquer your fate. Okay, that's a good one. Yeah. Oh, I love the tagline for Blue Velvet. The tagline for Blue Velvet is just now it's dark. With a period, like punctuated. That that seems very David Lynch. That's fucking great. I love that. Wow. That's the best tagline I think we've we've read on the show. Um anyway, back to the Northman. Uh the film stars, I skipped that part, Alexander Skarsgard, Nicole Kidman, and Kleiss Bang. Um, the film has no major awards, at least no Oscar nominations nor wins yet. At this point, this might end up being um one of the awards nominees this season it's to be seen i have not seen its name appear on any lists yet for the major awards um so it might not we will find out i guess um film is about a young viking prince is on a quest to avenge his father's murder uh corwin this was your pick you can go ahead and get us started uh, when I first uh, started watching this, I purposely went in zero knowledge whatsoever. Um, ice cold. Ice cold, uh, as they were in this film, because it is very north. Um, and like th- three minutes in, I was like, oh, this is this is definitely like an Ari Aster work. I definitely recognize this. And then I watched five more minutes and I was like, you know, I'm getting real like lighthouse vibes. This might be Roger uh, Eggers. Um, and then 10 minutes after that, I was like, fuck it. Like, I just need to look it up just so I know for like my own sanity and confirmation bias. But it's like, yeah, that's definitely Roger Eggers. That's about as Roger Eggers as it gets. And his name is man. Wow. That last movie made me feel, uh, stupid. Uh, this makes me feel even stupider. So thank you. Thank you all for listening. Happy to join you, Josh. Uh, thank you for having me. Um, good knowing you. Peace. Uh, that being said, our boy, Raji, um, excellent director. One of my favorites, even if I don't know who he is, maybe just don't give him a massive CGI budget. That's really the only complaint I have about this. I enjoyed the storyline. I enjoyed the acting. It was really, really beautiful in parts. But his use of CGI just didn't make sense to me and kind of was 
the biggest drawback for this being a triple a blockbuster type film or as it was intended to be and i just kept thinking back to an interview with i want to say either james cameron or michael bay about the use of practical effects versus the use of cgi and how cgi is absolutely incredible as an outlet to create things which you otherwise would not be able to create in real life but when people and by people directors use it as a crutch it really detracts from kind of the heart of the film and the viewership of the film because it ends up becoming something noticeably different from the rest of the real world you're you're viewing for the film and i couldn't agree more with this as an a plus example like the lighthouse had used cgi in certain scenes but it used it for things that were very much not achievable with the budget and the fact that it's two guys sitting on an island just can't really create a whole lot there Whereas this, with such a massive budget, by comparison, allows you to use it more freely. And I think it was used for like really basic things like replacing squibs or adding in uh, like ember effects in that final fight scene and, and adding fire effects, you know, in the foreground. It's just like, that's not what makes these films feel personal. And it's just, it, it felt like Beowulf at parts. Oh Both. my God. Right. Wow, like, I you remember how they forgot about that movie? Yeah. Beowulf was like on the cutting edge of uh, uh, what's the term? Uh, something Valley. Uh, what is it? Uncanny Valley. Uncanny Valley. Thank you. And it, it really felt like it was hitting those pieces at parts here. Otherwise, as a, as a story, relatively enjoyable i enjoyed watching alexander skarsgård um just kind of no, whoa sorry beowulf was directed by robert zemeckis and written by neil gaiman <laughs> oh what? my god what the what? fuck <laughs> what the fuck are you serious i don't believe you oh my god holy shit i don't believe oh you my- whatsoever. and it uh, here's just some other stuff about it for you. It cost $150 million to make, but also made $196 million. I would never would have guessed it made anywhere close to that. I never would have guessed any of this stuff. This is nuts. Oh my God. Zemeckis and Gaiman and Roger Avery, who like is a big time screenwriter. I mean, he has an Oscar. Uh, like Roger Avery is the man who co-wrote Pulp Fiction. What? Jesus. The fuck we oh that sounds like a whole deep dive into that movie at some point. God damn, holy shit, what pick happened? it, pick it. I will not. Um <laughs> yeah, I this, this is my second viewing of the movie. I saw this in theaters. Um nice. No better in theaters. I, I'm not a fan mm. of this movie. Um I found it incredibly sterile. It's amazing to see a film 
that seems to lean so much to rely so heavily on a small sect of human emotion and get to have basically no emotionality to it whatsoever. You know, this is a film yeah. dealing with anger, with with revenge, with love, both romantic and and familial. And to just not have any true weighty emotional beats at all. The only exception is maybe Nicole Kidman's speech uh, at at the uh, I guess like the the peak of Act Two when when she tells Omleth like I never loved your dad but ooh I'll fuck you baby um, like it was like that weird like little incest scene which like you could feel the spite of Nicole Kidman's character in that scene and her true like vindictive nature but outside of that I mean. Uh, I I think this this movie was boring. Um, it seemed like it wanted to be something of an action film and something of a mythological film and something of a romantic film, and it missed every single beat in that effect. Every single one of them, I think, fell flat. Felt wildly flat. Uh, and I, while they picked some beautiful locations to shoot in, and uh, hair and makeup killed it in this movie, I've also never seen a film with worse cinematography in my entire fucking life. Mm. I think the actual, each individual frame of the film is beautiful because the, I mean, set deck and art and, 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 uh, uh, production design were, were gorgeous and the actual locations are again are all beautiful i don't know if you noticed this and i i definitely didn't pick up on it too much in my disorientation of watching it the first time but on the second viewing there is not a single detail shot in the entire film there is not a single there is not a single shot in this entire film where the subject is not dead center in the movie on on screen what if you watch this film, Hold even on. the track, even the tracking shots of the movie, are of like uh, Alexander Skarsgård walking horizontally across screen with the camera pinning him as the center frame of the shot. What is this it streaming is, on again? I want to pull this up. Uh, HBO Max. I don't think it is. No. I don't remember. All right, I'll, I'll find it. But it, it it gets it gets incredibly frustrating because whatever uh, Amazon Prime, what, whatever is meant to be the subject of the, of of the film, which more often than not is you know one of the actors, that's it. And it got to the point where like you know I'm an hour into this movie and I'll watch someone walk into a room and typically when someone walks into a room because production design is expensive and like Robert Eggers does his research like this film I'm sure is going yeah. to be historic. I, I listened to him talk about the production of The Witch, and not only did he have them build all the sets to be extremely accurate to place and period, but he also had them build those sets with the tools that were accurate to that time. I'm sure he did the same thing here to achieve peak authenticity. So when a character walks into a room and there is not a single detail shot of the space, there's no context for what's happening. 
And it leads to the film not having any kind of emotionality because these people almost don't even exist. They're in spaces that you only see through the, through the periphery of what's happening, which is not effective filmmaking. I mean, it was so jarring. But how do you, like, we've seen Roger Eggers' films before. Like, we've seen... Robert. <laughs> His name is Robert. Jesus Christ. Uh, I was correcting it in my head before I said it. Um, correcting I know. it to the incorrect name. But, like, I, I, how, I does, kept... how does that not come up? How do you not I... notice something like that? How do you How do you direct a film? Holy shit. I am... Uh, I am just going through like the fast forward through the entire uh, film. And it just gives you like a frame by frame. Yeah, no, it is center center on everything on a, what seems like way more than 90%, 95% of shots. And to the point that the film almost feels like a single cam sitcom. Like, like they only had the one camera. Like there was no way what that they're like, the it, it's wild. And you're right. Like I kept watching this thinking like how much I loved the lighthouse. I think we talked about it on this podcast. I think uh-huh. we did. And it's, it's a really great movie. It's gorgeously shot. Like, and you know, there, there are these very easy, clear deviations that it's... are like not just blanketly center center. And to see this is wild. What's even crazier about the center center if you're doing what I'm doing, where you're kind of just scrolling scrubbing. through frame, but yeah, just scrubbing through the film, the character distance from the camera is identical. It's uniform. It's every uniform. single shot. Yes, I know, right? You are two to maybe five feet from a character at any given time for 90% of this film. That this is. Wild. far more intriguing than any discussion we've had on this podcast for another film solely because this is this is in fucking sane like seeing I don't know if I've ever seen a film that was basically like a play where you are sitting in the same seat for the entire two and a half hours getting the exact same view of every single scene and the other wild part about it is that there's not a lot of, and I, I do not mean to sound disrespectful to Alexander Skarsgård and uh, the, the handful of other people who get a decent amount of screen time, but the acting in the film is not emotional. The acting well, in the film seems to be lending itself more towards action. And so to that respect, you would expect more of the, emotional impact to be from you know cinematography and editing right like how are we capturing the shot how are we capturing the emotion of someone who isn't maybe necessarily expressing the most emotion right this is a very common thing that you see in romance films you know not to capture someone sad or angry in 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 a lilt that will offer you a view into their emotionality so that the actor doesn't have to do a hundred percent of the emotion work with their face acting is important to making those films effective. And really, this movie is 90% Alexander Skarsgård mean mugging the camera and trying to puff out his chest and shoulders as much as possible, which would make sense for his character, but then doesn't make the film very emotional. 
and also makes it disorienting to look at because you're just looking at the guy walking around hunched the entire film, which is not very engaging, especially for two hours and 15 minutes. This is, uh, I'm still trying to wrap my head around having a entirely new perspective on this film um, because it is really clearing up a lot of background thoughts I had um, that kind of pushed aside because I guess expectations and just complete visual, I don't know, debauchery. Uh, He really was just, hey, I'm angry. I'm going to have this singular focus, the singular expression, the singular approach to every scene up until that final fight where he realizes, oh, I am the asshole. And then seeing that 30 seconds of him having to deal with that before kind of pushing it aside and just being like, nope, I'm angry again. And coming back from what seems like near death to eventually kill your, your, Fjordner. Fjordner. Fjolnir? Yeah. Fjolnir, yeah. Boy, the name's got me on this film. This was uh, something. But uh, there was like 30 seconds in there where it was like satisfying. Uh, He got what was coming to him and he never realized that there was a different way to view this situation. Um, And then just kind of returns back to that mean mugging approach of like, hey, I'm a fucking, I mean, they tell us what he's going to be like throughout the film very early on. He's just a fucking rabid dog in a human body, um, which I, I get what he was trying to go with there. Looking back, I really do. Maybe it didn't have to be quite so literal for two hours and 10 of the two hour and 15 minute movie. Well, and, and, and that to me, and I'm going to make a comparison I'd never thought I would ever make, which is to hoist up the movie Braveheart. <laughs> but that's where this film felt like the weaker version of Braveheart to me. Like just lack of emotional variance. Yeah, it, it's like a hyper masculinized version of Braveheart, which I can't be- I again can't believe I'm saying because Braveheart to me feels like such a jocular film. Mm-hmm. But you know, the I a lot of the the themes and ideas are relatively similar, you know, like I, I, Mel Gibson's character in Braveheart, I don't remember his fucking name. Uh, and um, happy existing in my place. Uh, oh, William Wallace. Yes, um, thank you. Like, I, I, I know really, he's very famous. I should I just say, in my head, when I said that, I was like, oh, he's just a made up random Scotman name. And it's like, no, 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 this was a famous person. Um, like, I, I'm, I'm happy with, with my station in life. I, I think he was eventually going to become the like leader of his little area. And then King of England comes in. Prima Nocte fucks my my girl. Uh, I rebel. Tries then he then they kill her and now it's it's revenge. But there there are throughout the 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 revenge journey there is the increase in legend. There is the camaraderie with the other soldiers that he bands together with to imp, you know make headway in his revenge story. There are the romantic beats that he had in the beginning of the film that add weight to the latter portion of the film and some reminders throughout the journey of what this fight is about for him within the romance. And then there's also 
the very well done action scenes and it feels very large in scope and it is and there's comic relief and it's a dynamic film. This really isn't. This really, really is not. This is it. It, it feels like someone took a book report and then made that into a movie with no additional context. Like someone found the original story of Amleth in like bullet point format. And then was just like, yeah, we can shoot these scenes and then we'll call it a movie. And it's not because there's, there's, there's no emotionality to it. There really isn't. There's some things that we, I, I mean, I think we all recognize as patterns of human behavior, uh, things that we all would recognize would make us upset, but there, there isn't a lot to really latch onto here. Damn, Josh, you, uh, I was, I was so happy being naive about watching, you know, a mindless film about this guy cutting people's heads with a sword that only comes out at night. And now I'm realizing, okay, wait, hold on. That's a good point. Cause I really didn't understand. Is that what the sword was? It only comes out at night. It can only be unsheathed at night. That was it. Okay. Cause so this actually leads me to one of my other complaints about the movie which is magic is real, but kind of only when we want it to be. So, so the, the idea, uh, cause the idea of faith, like that can be abstract enough and, and not involved enough that usually it's easy to look past because it doesn't necessarily intercede with the uh, events of a film, but to say, so, but to show it so directly at, via like premonition and ritual, and then to have that like fight with the dead man, very like um pirates of the caribbean esque to have and to have recognition of it like ooh this this was done by a sword that is thirsty for blood and it's like all right so there is magic happening in this world that is being recognized by other people as well but we're not going to bring that up a lot like, almost never really gonna yeah no never play in. Uh, and honestly, how dare you for even bringing that up outside of watching the film? How dare you? Yeah, because like, uh, I mean, I, what, I get out, outside the- of the sword and I guess. What what magic do we see on screen? That's not just inferred to. Well, a lot of it comes down to really, I guess, the um, the interactions with the what well, oh, there's a word for them. Uh, they're not prophets, but Oracle. you know what I'm saying? Oracles, yes. Where it's like they they had this mystical knowledge. They know his name, even though they haven't interacted with them. Um, one of them has the head of Willem Dafoe's character and, and can, uh, you know, seemingly force some shit to, like, materialize. His, his, his voice can be heard. Um you know, you know the the early interaction with the woman with the beads, or or she like uh, also I think created some some sense of vision. Um, you know, it, mostly it surrounds the oracles and not just their ability to give premonition, but also their ability to seemingly manifest stuff. And it's like okay, so if 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 we're going to say that that oracles are real, then that would surmise. A lot of the rituals that were are being done with, at this time 
would also have real effect. But they're, if that's the case, then they're completely unutilized. Right. I'm not saying I know much of anything about Norse mythology because fucking no, I don't. But I'd be willing to bet then that there are other practices that would occur at this time that would have probably lent a hand in this type of journey that just are being disregarded because it's not effective. Man, I am. Uh, I'm now incredibly torn on uh, my own recollection of this film. So thank you for that. I, I also want to complain about one other thing, and then I will, I'll give Please. this movie some compliments because this movie does deserve some compliments. Um, I, this, this, this was so stupid to me that when it came up, because I remembered it being dumb when I saw it in theaters, but Kel wasn't there for that. So when it came up again, I was ready to pause it to just explain to her how fucking mad this made me because I thought it was so stupid. So Alexander Skarsgård kills the oldest son. Right. Mm -hmm. And Anya Taylor Joy, who Anya Taylor Joy has got to be the most famous person to only pick mediocre to bad movies to be in. Because if you look at her filmography, her filmography is terrible for someone as famous as she is. It's Mm -hmm. wild. Anyway. Well, granted, she did get about 15 parts in the span of about a year. And they're, but yeah, and it's wild because they're all like bad. If it wasn't for the Queen's Gambit, I'm not sure we would. Uh, Queen's Gambit and her bit parts. I didn't even love the Queen's Gambit. I didn't even watch it. I don't care. I find her very disorienting to look at. And I don't think I could look at those eyes for that long and not just sit there and think about how far apart they are. I agree 100%. <laughs> like, sh- her eyes are so far apart, she's not even a predator. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> I've and, had the exact same thought of just like it looks like she is an iguana with the eyes on both sides of the head. <laughs> she is in a defensive position. <laughs> anyway. Um, so Anya Taylor Joy is like, oh shit, you killed the king's son. Let's run away. And Alexander Skarsgård's like, no, I'm gonna run away, but you should stay here. <laughs> and Anya Taylor Joy is like, fucking, why would I stay here? And he's like, Well, they're gonna be looking for me, and I don't want them to uh, find you with me and then kill you. And she just like clearly didn't accept this, but was like, fucking whatever, dude. The next scene is the following morning and uh, Fjolnir is lined up a bunch of the servants, killing them as he goes by, gets to Anya Taylor-Joy and is like, you were clearly involved in this. And then Alexander Skarsgård walks down a mountain where he was, what, letting those other ones die? <laughs> he saw the whole thing happen and just like didn't intercede at all until the timing was cool and then was like, hey, don't kill Olga. I got your kid's fucking heart. And then proceeds to get duffed up immediately and taken prisoner. <laughs> it was then, the stupidest thing I've ever seen. But his only response to that was, huh, maybe it's a dog's heart. <laughs> But also, like, what was your plan? What was your plan? Would it, would it not have made more sense to take Anya Taylor-Joy and then just run the fuck away? Like, your idea was to say, no, don't come with me. They'll be looking for me. You should stay here so you're safe. They did not come looking for you. Nope. They came accusing all of the, the other slaves, of which your girlfriend was one of them, and killed, like, four of them before they even got to her. 
mm-hmm. at which point her life was in jeopardy and you got captured immediately. Yeah, like if, if he was going to run away, run away. Like right. you didn't. You just stood on a hill about 100 yards away after several hours. Like where, where'd you go? Did he just sit up in the hill, like behind a rock? That's what, and that's what I'm saying makes the timing of his like descent down the hillside so fucking comical. Because it's like, all right, you had all night, so like it's not like this happened 30 minutes after the preceding scene because it was you know pitch black and now it it's like you know early morning, you know seven o'clock in the morning, some shit like that. Like all you had to do was cut out this kid's heart, which it seems like you had already done. Um, and then either a go hide it or b go find a, an escaped dog and cut out its heart. We're talking an hour of preparation mm-hmm. time tops. The rest of the time must have been spent with you hiding behind a big rock <laughs> on the top of the mountain or some shit like that, and waiting until the timing was cool enough for you to say something. It it truly is a plan conceived by someone who just spent the last like ten years doing drugs and beating up peasants. Or the plan of if you ask a middle schooler, middle school boy, what they thought would be really cool, and then he comes down the hill, and he tries to save and her, charges, and charges, charges through the entire army and kills them all, and then captures the king. It's like, oh yeah, they're like, you did, like forty five percent of that, not quite half. You got stopped pretty quick. You, you cut through a couple of them. Oh, but he doesn't have, it's daytime, so he doesn't have a sword. So he's just beating them with this stick, the sword in the sheath. Yeah, and then what if when he's getting all hung up in the middle of the of the barn thing, crows save him? Crows? Yeah, like the fates, but they're crows. It's like, oh, do those crows ever come back in, or were they ever a part of it earlier? Nope. Well, uh, it was his dad. Like the dad was the raven sitting on like the, the war raven. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I get it. They have no <laughs> other it. presence anywhere in the movie. Yeah, no, just that one, like, two scenes. The film is like that. The film is a constant churn of deus ex machina. Like I am, I made it to Iceland. I'm ready to kill my brother. I have no instruments to do so. What's that? I found an oracle just kind of around <laughs> like just just on a slightly lower part of of the this video game map mm-hmm. oh what's that this oracle knows where a magic sword is oh cool it's, yeah. it's right over there wow look at that also the fight with the magical sword demon um i don't know if that was meant to be in his head i don't know either that was uh the kind of genesis of the question whether or not we see any other magic actually being real because it, it very well could not be because uh, I don't know, that definitely was not confirmation of any sort. Yeah, I I couldn't quite make out. I mean, it almost feels like maybe it's a thing that did happen on like a slightly, almost like a different plane of existence. You know what I mean? Like I I could I could understand it in a way where it's like if he succeeds in the fight, which he did, like the fight didn't physically occur but it grants him access to the sword and in, in, in the regular realm in which we exist but if he were to have lost then maybe his soul or some essence of his being gets 
reaped by the sword or or the the being guarding it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I could see it in like a slightly different astral plane kind of way, but it, it's a little bit tough to really dissect without knowing that. Uh, yeah, tough to dissect is a pretty good explanation for this film. Uh, so I guess to talk maybe just a little bit more about the plot before we uh, wrap up here, since we haven't really gotten on the pl- plot too much. Uh, the plot is Hamlet. Uh, yeah. This is the early basis or the the uh, predecessor to William Shakespeare's play Hamlet. This is the Icelandic myth that Hamlet is based upon. So it it Hamlet expands a lot more on this story, you know, like Hamlet um puts on a play to get a rise out of his uncle to get him to essentially in a way to like confess to being the murderer of his brother um aka Hamlet's father you know like there there's other parts that very clearly are not represented in here there's not this like move from uh Norway or wherever it was to to Iceland like there's none of that um but it is otherwise very much so just kind of Hamlet. Um, so to that effect, the beats plot-wise are very familiar because not just is it Hamlet, but that play specifically is one that is like the precursor to the modern revenge story. So if you're going to read a book, watch a play, watch a movie, that uh, is in some ways about revenge, it is going to be this story, essentially. This mm-hmm. is the grandfather oh, of all. And Shakespeare stories. taking all the stories. God. Oh, I mean, yeah. And if it's not from old Iceland, it's just taken from Avi. Fucking Shakespeare. God. Everyone knows Avi is the true poet laureate. Anyway. Um, was, was there any... Um, I know you said before we started recording that, that you had notes on this. Any any notes uh, stand out to you? Particularly yeah, let me uh, let me see if I could pull those up. Um, it was mostly uh, commentary about uh, random shit and not knowing if it was Roger Eagers. And by Roger, I mean Robert. <laughs> okay, um, I was going to say. I do man, a lot of a lot of CGI shit. Uh, and needing way less of a budget. And also, uh, one little sentence in here, I loathe Nicole Kidman. Nicole Kidman is a fantastic fantastic actress. So take that for what you will. That's I was an opinion say, I've shared before. Nicole Kidman, who I think has drawn a lot of ire recently for her punishingly terrible AMC pre-film it's commercials. It's disgusting in everything I would expect from Nicole Kidman. But at the same time, she is such a good actress that when she's in something good, because I know we both just derided Nicole Kidman for her performance in um, The Ricardos, like Mm -hmm. she does have an Oscar for the hours and the hours is fucking great. She has Oscar nominations for Moulin Rouge, Rabbit Hole and Lion. And she is great in all those movies. And she is great here. So like, even though I do share some, some of that, like, weird resentment for Nicole Kidman. She is one of the best parts of this movie. Same thing with Ethan yeah. Hawke, by the way. Ethan, Ethan, shout out. Agreed. Those three acting performances, um, Nicole Kidman, Ethan Hawke, and Kleiss Bang are all spot on. 
like mm-hmm. nailed their roles. Well, because those are uh, very good actors and actresses, whereas uh, the child for our our myth, our month, um, I'm left. I'm Yo, our boy Ace Garsgard and Anna Taylor Joy are like, other than the child, big names that are otherwise not known for their genuine acting ability. Um, I did actually want to ask you because I, I, all right. So my thought, and then I'll ask you my question because, of course, my questions can't just be simple. Um, of course not. Alexander Skarsgård. Yes. At the time of making this film, was forty-five years old. What? Yeah, he was born looks in nineteen seventy-six. Great, by the way. Yeah, look, looks great. But so, like, the question I have is, how long are we to understand? time has passed since young Amleth became the one that we saw like is he supposed I to be mean, 45 in which well, case no because he has the baby the so, the oldest brother is went from young baby to i don't know 18 20 so how long would you say then like 16 to 20 years yeah i would say 18 years would be a pretty good um synopsis for you know giving it some leeway it seems like something a movie would be oh yeah it's an 18 year excursion into the wilderness to become the man to kill or avenge his father because so this is my this is now my question for you i'm not i don't do you think casting and or makeup did a bad job here because either so uh, I, I'm wrestling with trying to how to how to phrase it. So Alexander Skarsgård to me in this movie looks his age. Like he's in phenomenal shape, but he looks like a 40 year old man in the face. Which I was like, oh okay. Well, you know what though, that actually could be fair because he had a hard life, hmm. and yeah. that might age you. Like that's actually kind of a reasonable thing to say. However, Nicole Kidman and Kleist Bang look exactly the same from when we saw them in the early goings of the film to when we see them in the later goings of the film. And obviously we understand them to be a you know higher society yeah. and blah, 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 blah. But clearly life has also not gone great for them. And the stresses of medieval living, I'm sure, are very, very difficult as well. And you'd expect some degree of aging in 20 years, regardless of how easygoing your life is. And it, I don't know, it just made me... I, I get why they might want to be more lenient to the age showing in Amleth because definitely the harder life on the of the two sides of things, but to not use any either aging down in the early part of the film so that the later part, you know, it was weird to have them be exactly the same is what I guess I'm trying to get at. Did you feel any type of way about that? No, but I do understand the living in the woods trying to like the yeah, like the what they showed from the life he was living and the life that those two would inevitably be have be have have been living in their own right, whereas you know they're not kings but lords and lady type situation. It's definitely got to be a significantly different experience. Whereas you know they are not, they are not living a difficult life like the the hard work that they are doing that we see them doing early on is just purely a we're doing this to show the slaves that they can't fucking 
brutally murder us because we're little bitches. Um, not, I'm doing this so that a wolf doesn't kill me in my sleep. Right. And that's why I did not bring this up as like a major complaint early on in the discussion. Yeah. <laughs> Just uh, something that I was thinking about it, as we went on. It, it's, our, it's our normal discussion of there are much bigger fish to fry here. So yes. I won't, I will cut them some slack in their own right. Right. Um, there is, uh, there's, a, there's a lot more that could be talked about with this film. I mean, really in like almost that Shakespearean type of way, because uh-huh. this is an original tragedy to, uh, so the, 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 there's lots of those types of beats to discuss in it. You know, the the vague incest scene and the I mean, we barely talked about the connection between Anya Taylor-Joy and Alexander Skarsgård. Yeah, like I, the, my reading of that Nicole Kidman scene when she kissed her son on the oh, mouth was like, right. I love your uncle, but I'm also an opportunist. And yeah, if, um, <laughs> hey, if this you means, know, you know, not death, uh, I'll take it. Right up until I guess the point of no return, which was the you know later scene where Nicole Kidman try does try to kill him, and <laughs> Alexander Skarsgård gets duffed up by his younger half brother. Oh boy, how uh, opinions change so quickly in that. <laughs> um, yeah, so lo- obviously lot lots more to talk about, but you know we're at a certain point here. Uh, unless there's anything else you would like to bring up, uh, I guess we could wrap up and pick next week's movies. Uh, fine by me. All right. Well, this was uh. Your film, Corwin. So, final ratings and reviews. You start. Um, it uh, it was a film. It was one that I watched. It was one that I was here for. Um, visually, if you don't look too closely, very beautiful. Uh, now I know that if you do look closely, disgusting and unwatchable. Um, honestly, I as much as I would love to talk shit about the choice that was made for that, I'm more intrigued by the choice to do it and what the perceived goal was for doing so. Like I, what, I kept uh, thinking about the whole movie. Yeah. What, what are you gaining from this that would otherwise be lost for having, you know, opinions? I, I, I asked myself that question the entirety of this second viewing and uh i came up with another constructive so i have no answer but it's fine uh, i really can't uh, argue um i'll give it uh i want to give it a three it was still very watchable um i know people that i would recommend this to purely as a i know they won't look into it too deeply and will very much enjoy this so that goes for something yeah, I um, I mean, obviously, we talked about some of the complaints and drawbacks. And as we have said on this show several times, like it's always easier to talk about those things than it is to talk about like the good stuff, because it's easier to kind of like get into yeah. the why something didn't work or whatever. Um, So I, I would also probably give this a three. <laughs> I was joking around with Cal after watching it that I feel like this movie was made to be on AMC at one o'clock on Sundays. <laughs> <laughs> this is um, definitely a dad sitting on a Sunday after, you know, or before watching football in between watching football, your team just lost fucking I'm flipping on whatever's on TV and then just getting lost in the sauce for a couple hours. Yeah. Or like, like a halftime killer. You know what I mean? Like oh yeah. Tw- definitely just 20 minutes of this. Definitely a movie. My dad could watch without seeing the first 45 minutes. 
Oh, 100. Actually, go ahead. No, it, it is a post episode discussion. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, because yeah, this first of all, like Corwin said, if you're not if you're not critically looking at the film, it is very pretty. Like, like the the set design is great. The locations are great. The uh, it's gonna sound very sassy, but the color grading is great. It, the it, it shot was. selection is is bad, but everything else about the way in which the film was shot is wonderful. And because the plot is very simplistic and rudimentary. It's super easy to have on as a thing that you're half paying attention to or a movie that you can be like, oh, shit, <laughs> it's one thirty, and the movie started at one o'clock on AMC. I'll flip that on for 15, 20 minutes. Yeah, that sounds great. Which, yeah, which I'm sure over the passage of time, Corn and I are going to end up doing. Yeah. Um, and to, to that end, like, it's not bad. It goes down pretty easy. It's a little bit long for how base level simple the plot is and how little they do with it. But it is a perfectly easy and enjoyable film to watch on a first viewing. Maybe not a constant rewatch film like some of the other better ones we've done on this show, but a perfectly good uh, film to check out. So I'm, I'm with you. Three stars feels very appropriate. All right. All right, Josh. Give it to me. Next week's picks. You ready? You want me to start? Yeah, go ahead. I always prefer when you start. All right. I'm going to go uh, with a movie I have not yet seen. Um, called Taste of Cherry, which is currently streaming on HBO Max. Sure. You are correct. Uh, I, I never would have guessed that. Yeah. What do you got, buddy? Uh, in a discussion that Josh and I had before the film, uh, before we started recording for the films, uh, we realized I had never seen Crank, and it is Josh's, one of his biggest guilty pleasure films, so, of course, uh, it is one that we have to watch. I forgot that was the movie you're going to pick, and I got excited all over again. <laughs> when you just when you just announced you're picking it. All right. Oh, I hope you fuckers are ready for Chev Chelios. Oh, Jason Statham. I promise you, I am not. It's so good. It's so good. All right. Chev Chelios and Crank. Um, excellent. Two wildly different movies <laughs> so those will be good uh, crank is currently streaming on paramount plus uh taste of cherry is currently streaming on hbo max check them out before the show or not whatever by the time we record our next episode hopefully there's a little bit more clarity into um best picture and, and other um nominees uh, how that field will kind of play out as of right now, as of right now, it seems like the field is starting to winnow down. I'm seeing a little bit more consistency in like the predictor websites. So um, maybe at the start of the next episode, we will start trying to uh, pluck from those lists. But as of right now, um, just the regular, regular episodes before we get into Oscars. So that's that. Uh, in the meantime, if you'd like to follow the show on Twitter, you can do so at Big Screen Juice. If you'd like to follow Corwin on Twitter, you can do so at Corwin Heller. If you follow myself on Twitter, you can do so at Joshua D. Tracy. If you'd like to send emails to the show, you can do so at juiceofthebigscreen at gmail.com. And until next time, y'all have a good one. Bye.